The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Just listen to the show and catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. Motivational speaker Steve Chen of Success Holding, trading in the U.S. under the symbol SHGT, joins us to discuss his road to his company's multi-million dollar success. And in November of 2013, I predicted gold will plummet to $900 an ounce. In February of this year, 2015, I repeated my prediction. It's not a psychic prediction. It's not based on convoluted analytical research. It's just so-called common sense. Be sure to listen to my repeated rant in this episode. Let's begin the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Ellis Martin. Success Holding Group International trades under the symbol SHGT. SHGT was formed based on the philosophy and business strategies of Steve Chen, Asia's number one motivational speaker with over 80 million followers. Originally from Taiwan and with homes there and in China, he studied business at prestigious Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. What is a motivational speaker and why is this important? Perhaps you've heard of Tony Robbins worth an estimated $500 million today. Well, Steve Chen is one of Tony Robbins' most successful students and having an interest in the field, I was curious as how Steve became such a world-renowned speaker. Steve Chen and I met recently at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills, and I asked him how he got into the business. And it is a business of motivational speaking and his start working with Tony Robbins. You are the number one motivational speaker in Asia with over 80 million followers. How does that happen? And let's talk about the road to where you're at today. I started out when I was 14. I moved to the States. And then I always wanted to become successful, but I didn't know how. So like at age 16, I started working as a part-time in my aunt's computer store. I was a salesperson. And then I was selling cars, kitchen cutleries, water filtration systems, supermarket coupons, US Sprint telephone cars. And I tried like 18 different jobs. I worked really hard part-time, but somehow just didn't click. So at age 21, when I was at Pepperdine University, I found out, one day that my bank account had no money. It's like 0.00, no, not even one dime, one cent. So that time was like really scary because I was alone. I have a lot of pride for myself. I don't want to ask my family for the money. I didn't really have any friends. You know, it's like, wow, what do I do? So I was totally desperate. And fortunately, one of my buddies who has a friend worked at Tony Robbins' company. And then he said, there's a ticket for me to go there. So that's when I first exposed to Tony's program. And that day, Tony hit a home run.
once, like on stage, his energy, his philosophies of life, his strategies. I said, wow, he's only like seven years older than me. I'm totally flat broke. He lives in a castle. Something's wrong with my philosophy. I must learn from this guy. Higher end courses cost a lot more money. So I tried to borrow money to attend his course. And after that, he said, there's another higher level course. I said, oh, really? Wow. And at that time, I believe it cost more than 4,000 US dollars. I'm like, whoa, here's a guy starving. You know, it's so desperate. How could I find the money? Finally, I made a phone call to my mom. I said, mom, I need some money quick. And my mom said, what's the money for? I said, for education. Oh, didn't you go to college? Didn't you pay your tuition already? I said, yeah, college works. You know, really nice. You know, but additional education will get me somewhere else. And I said, oh yeah, how much do you need? I said, you know, over 4,000 US dollars. She's like shocked. Why, is, is that program for two years? I said, no, 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 for two weeks in Hawaii. Oh yeah, so the teacher must be very experienced. He must be like 60 years old. I said, no, 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 about 27. Oh yeah, he must graduate from Harvard or Stanford. I said, no, 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 high school graduate. So my mom was like, really? I said, no, 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 just support me one last time. You know, I won't let you down. So my mom finally wired me the money, attended the course in Hawaii for 14 days. Uh, like two days before the end of the program, Tony said, the fastest way to become successful is to work for a successful person. What concepts? What I thought was, you know, just find a job, work hard, then you become successful. You need to follow a person who has a proven track record. I said, wow, I got it. So I went for interview. About 85 people out of 850 people went for the interview. I think I was the only one who got hired. Wow, I'm this Asian who's not fluent in English, no money, no track record. They hire me? I said, wow. Then I asked the general manager finally, I said, out of all these people, American, who have better qualifications than me, why'd you hire me? And he told me one answer. He said, those people, they're just interested. But Steve, you are the most committed. We want the people who have the commitment, and that's you. We think you will become successful. So that day turned my destiny around. Tell us about the journey from that day to the success that you've achieved over the last 27 years. What kind of hardships did you find along the way? Was it easy for you? What did you continually have to do? to achieve the success you've had? I was hired as a sales representative. It's like a promoter promoting Tony Robbins programs. But for me, it's very difficult. I was 21. I had no money, no prior speaking experience, no success track records. I need to persuade Americans who are older, more successful than me, say, oh, you need to attend this guy's program. It's like very difficult. First couple of times, I got zero sales. No tickets were sold. And I was like, so depressed. And I said, wow, I failed so many times already. Now I'm working for this person. If I cannot become successful in his company, I think there's no ways for me to become successful any other places. So I rehearsed my presentation. I made a hundred cold calls every day, telemarketing. I faced the mirror, basically rehearsed three hours per night, every single day. So it's like really, really hard work. At the end of the first cycle, that's like four to six weeks, the cycle. I sold about like 104 tickets. In order for you to qualify for the next cycle, you need to sell over 100. I barely qualified. It's like, whoa, thank God. The second cycle, I sold about, I believe, 137. And the third one, close to 200. So I was improving really fast, but it took me a lot of work. It wasn't easy. So nothing came that easy. So I overcome my fears of public speaking. I always pretending I was Tony Robbins on stage. You know, it's like, I need to do this power move. I need to turn my fear into power. <laughs> it's totally scary. You just can't imagine a kid, you know, trying to persuade people who are much older and more successful. So with that kind of little success, my confidence really grew. One day I met a customer. She said, wow, aren't you going to speak for us? 
I said, no, 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 the, the keynote speaker is Tony Robbins. No, 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 we want to listen to you. I said, no, 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 I'm just a promoter, you know. I said, no, 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 you, you're the best. I said, oh, really? So that lady gave me that compliment. Confidence got stronger. So it all started from there. And then I went back to Asia. I met this guy, Dr. Xi. He's a fan of Tony Robbins. He's from Canada. He said, oh, yeah, Tony's great, but he doesn't speak Chinese. Why don't you pretend like you're Tony Robbins and do something in Asia? I said, no, 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 I'm just a promoter, you know. He said, yeah, 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 let's try it. We'll hire you. Do something. I said, okay, maybe I'll help the Chinese, okay? So I started doing programs in Taiwan. I was the youngest speaker in Taiwan. And then I was on stage, jumping up and down, giving this woke clap, say yes. They're like, what are you doing, you know, Steve? Because the Chinese, they're more conservative. I brought this American energy. In the beginning, they're like, new kids on the block, how long would you last? And all of a sudden, I grew popular. My courses were filled. People signed up and they produced results. And I said, wow, it's kind of working. So one day, one of the publishers came to me and said, oh, Steve Chen, your talks are really nice. How come you don't write a book? And I said, I can't, I have no experience. Oh, it's okay. We'll transcribe speeches, do something for you. So the book is called like, uh, You Are the Treasure, okay? So I said, oh, okay, whatever. You know the publishing business. Within the first month, I was the number one bestseller in Taiwan. All of Taiwan. One month, first time unknown author and became number one best-selling author. And I, I said, oh, wow, it's working. And then, oh, do another one. Became the number one seller again. And then back in 1996, my super success principles were the number one seller of all year for the nonfiction category. People asked me to go on TVs, radio shows, and all. I, I grew my popularity at that time. And then at that time, the tapes, not even, you know, DVDs, okay, the tapes, the books, I think somehow went to China. And I got famous there, and people from China calling me, say, oh, Steve Chen, how come you don't go to China to do programs? We need this kind of material. So I said, really, is there a market? I'm not familiar with China. Although we're all Chinese, but I knew nothing about it. So one day I went there, I didn't do a seminar, I did a Q&A session with about 300 people in Beijing. And then people's responses were like overwhelming. I said, wow, must be a niche for my seminar. So I started at the end of year 2000 and now it's year 2015. So I have almost 15 years of experience in China, 14, 15 years. And then I've spoken in about 66 cities and my programs are ranging from 400 people to 8,000. The largest event I did for a private company is 15,000 in an outdoor stadium. But usually I like to hold the numbers to about 1,000. That's easier to talk. So that's how I started. I then asked Steve if he developed his charismatic skills along the way and if it was a case of preparation meeting opportunity equaling luck when he was first asked to speak in Taiwan and then China. That's exactly, that's what luck is all about. First presentations, go to so many cities, overcome many obstacles. Anybody who's successful is not easy. It looks easy, but it takes many years of hard work. There's always that X factor. You have to do the work, prepare, and know that an opportunity an often unknown opportunity will always arrive for you. Oh, of course, of course. You never know when the opportunity will knock on you, but you have to be prepared always. Sometimes people get lucky within a year. Sometimes people get lucky within five years. Sometimes it takes 15 years to 20 years to get that break. So it's like you need to persist. A lot of people ask me, what's your secret for success? I said persistence. Persistence will take you wherever you want to go in the long run, not short time. Steve Chen's philosophy is a blend of Western and Eastern culture and tradition, as we discussed before this interview. I asked him how his education, his years spent in the United States, assist him in empowering his followers to succeed monumentally in their own business endeavors. I think the Western education is very important to me. 
because people in the West, they seem more optimistic, they're open-minded, they're positive, they're progressive. People in Asia, they're more conservative. They don't say things directly. They go around circle. They say something and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. No, no, you don't. <laughs> because it's not the things they say, it's the things they don't say that really matters. So I'm trying to combine these two cultures together. When I'm in Asia, I talk about a lot of American marketing strategies. Chinese, they love management. Americans, they like marketing. Management was like for like 30, 40 years ago that when the topic was hot. Right now, it's all internet marketing now. It's personal promotion. It's infomercial. Asia has a different approach. I don't try to bring 100% American stuff to Asia because that might not work that well. I always modify a little bit. It's like the automotive industry. The Chinese, the bosses usually have chauffeurs. They like the EWB, extended wheelbase. Even the BMW 3 Series has an LI. 5 Series has an LI. Audi A6 has an L. Americans, they just drive the car. The Chinese, they want to sit in the back, you know, relax. People who go into Asia, especially China, they need to change their strategies and mentalities because people do think differently. I believe the Americans and the Chinese, they're about at least 50 to 70% difference in thinking. So it's very hard to comprehend that the Chinese culture. It's not like you go to the Forbidden City, you've been to the Great Wall, you've been to Shanghai, and you say, oh, I know China. It doesn't work that way. I'm Chinese, okay? It took me like at least five to 10 years to understand, I believe, about 65% of the mainland China philosophies. I'm still learning that the water is really deep. <laughs> now, over the past 27 years or so, you've been consulting corporations and business leaders. You've done quite a bit in China. You've assisted them in growing their business exponentially. How have you parlayed these relationships that you've done into the company success holdings. A lot of people attended my course before. Obviously, I'm going to have like some really good testimonials. There's a guy who attended my program about uh, nine years ago. He was 27 and then almost flat broke. So after my program, he went to borrow some money, started his uh, fitness centers. Now he has over 200 of them in China, number one in China right now. And he's still like 35 years old, you know, so he's very successful. One of my other female students who used to be a general manager for a beauty salon, after she attended my high-end course, she started open beauty salons right now for about more than 10 years now. She has over 2,000 stores. So she's netting about $150 million US per year. Netting, I'm not talking about gross. So I have many students like that. And I always ask them, you know, which philosophy or which strategies that you use to create that success. And they always said, it's the standards. I tell them, you must have high standards, world class. Everything you do, start thinking world's number one. Not your local number one, not Chinese number one. You must start from the highest standards and then you work your dream step by step. So because people usually, they say, oh, okay, if I make 20,000 this year, so next year I make 25 or 30. That's very good growth. But for me, I'm looking at the Forbes list. <laughs> so start small, but think really, really big. But in order for you to do that, you need to change your beliefs because not too many people have that strong conviction that they can do that. So this is where Tony Robbins' philosophies will come in. If I can't, then I must. If I must, then I will. You need to stretch yourself. Stretch your thinking, believe it's possible, change strategies, model people who are successful. So very simple concepts that they learn, but they do put in practice and then it starts showing results 
over and over through different types of people, different type of industries. You and I were talking the other night. We were talking about motivational speaking in the United States and in North America. And you said motivational speaking shouldn't just be about talk. It should be a call to action and doing. Many motivational speakers here in the U.S. just talk about a broad range of ideas without offering practical methods of putting these ideas into practice to accomplish meaningful results. Am I right? Half and half. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because uh, in order to become successful, sometimes just one idea. For me, one idea will work. But for people who have less background, less foundation, they need more strategies. So the difference between my programs and the people in the States, I think, is I provide more practical strategies that's going to work in the Chinese societies. But the same strategies I provide in China might not work in the States because different culture. Chinese like to gather people around. Americans, they just use the internet. Chinese love to go to the movie theaters. It's getting really popular. But Americans, they went to the theaters before. Now maybe I just watch on the internet. So it's different. It's different. So there's really something that's 100% correct. It's all determined on the timing of the market and the, the readiness for people. Some people, they're not ready for ideas that are too advanced. So I need to sometimes get the cutting edge ideas down a little bit so people can accept and apply. But Taiwan and China were ready for Steve Chen, right? Taiwan was ready for Steve Chen first. And after about maybe nine years, 10 years, then China was ready. Right now, people from Taiwan, they need to go to mainland China to attend my program. <laughs> people from Malaysia, they came to mainland China. And then now I'm getting students from Spain, although they're Chinese, from Germany, from Russia, Czechoslovakia. You know, I'm getting all the Chinese people from Paris, France. They all are flying to China to attend my course because I don't have courses you know, abroad. How has your course changed in the last five to 10 years compared to maybe how it was many years ago? Have you introduced some new mandates, philosophies, thoughts? Of course, everything needs to be updated. It's like the iPhone, you know, now it's iPhone 6 plus, soon will be iPhone 7. Because the Chinese, they're so smart, they've learned things so quickly. If you don't improve, they'll surpass you next year. This year, they'll call you teacher. Next year, you attend their program, become a student. They really emulate well and they'll find Find a way to improve because they know the market. So it's like uh, Alibaba.com. Jack Ma, 15 years ago, was just an ordinary guy. Now he's worth over 30 billion US dollars. How a guy 15 years ago knocking doors, totally broke, become one of the richest men in Asia in 15 years? It's impossible because the richest Chinese was Li Ka-shing from Hong Kong for like 30 years straight. Jack Ma took 15 years, surpassed Li Ka-shing's 60 years of hard work. That shows you a lot, you know, it's amazing, amazing. But Jack Ma was an English teacher. He went to Seattle. He found out internet was booming. Ah, maybe he could do the same thing in China because most people in China at that time, their English was considered to be poor. So they're missing the cutting edge information. So a lot of people in China right now, they go to English schools to learn more. So once the English are like you and me now, then you'll see more top Chinese entrepreneurs will be listed on the Forbes list, I think. Now, you've been compared to Jack Ma and this company has been compared to Alibaba and the fact that there's a potentially a great deal of upside. Let's talk about that. Your ideas, you have a lot of ideas. Because of the success you've had, you know how to execute them, right? Yeah, of course. Right now, SSGT, we have uh, three main businesses. One is my seminar, Motivational Business. The other one is the 
AAA Black Rice Health Drink. And the third one is Inspiration Film on the Internet. Success Seminar will help you become financially successful. AAA Black Rice Health Drink will make you healthier. And Inspirational Short Film on the Internet is kind of like the chicken soup for the soul on the Internet. Give you positive energy. When they don't attend my programs, they can actually learning, entertaining, and on the Internet, 24 hours, anytime, anywhere. The 888 drink, it's not exactly a caffeine-filled energy drink like Red Bull or Monster. It's a healthy drink. And let's talk about health and how does that figure into your philosophy, Steve? Because I'm a motivational speaker, I'm on stage a lot. Anybody who's on stage a lot for long hours needs to be very healthy. I cannot be sick and go on stage and you know, do a motivational seminar. That will not work. So health has always been one of my focus. For me personally, I drink water. I drink really high-quality Chinese tea. And I drink AA Black Rice drink. The reason is that when I go to the supermarket or any convenience stores like 7-Eleven, I always see the bottled water. And then I see other drinks with a lot of white sugar. If you drink a lot of white sugar, eventually you'll get diabetes. You cannot. You will. You will. will. You eventually will happen. It's just matter. So I don't want to get diabetes. <laughs> so I'm always looking for something that's healthy. But it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So I'm like, wow. So about uh, two or three years ago, one of my students came with me with this uh, bag of black rice. And then, you know, asked me for advice how to market the rice. I say, oh, no, that's too heavy. I don't want to be a farmer, you know, marketing this rice. I said, maybe if we can put a black rice into our format like a drink, consumable, drinkable, good taste, less sugar or no white sugar at all. So eventually, we created this formula of the black rice drink. It's not sweet. It's very mild sweet, but it's not white sugar. It's vegetarian cane sugar. So people, even who have diabetes, should be able to drink it. Although I'm not a physician, you know, I, I shouldn't be saying that. But a lot of people drink this AA black rice drink. They become thinner. They lost weight. They become more energetic. You can drink it cold, drink it room temperature, drink it hot. The children can drink it. Adults can drink it. You can replace the breakfast. You don't want to eat snack. You don't want to gain weight. Okay, you can drink that. So usually in the morning, if I'm starving, but I need to rush to the airport, I'll have an AA. Or after the seminar, wasted a lot of energy on stage. Whoa, I told my assistant, come on, bring me one AA black rice drink. I need to fill my stomach up. Or during late night, eating late night snack is not good. Okay, give me another black rice drink. So for me, it's so helpful. So I believe a lot of people will have the same need as I do. So I feel strongly this AA black rice drink will take off in China, maybe even in the States in the future. Right now, we're in about 8,000 stores in Shanghai alone. Stores meaning convenience stores or supermarkets or care for similar to Walmart in large supermarkets. And then we try to expand that to about 50,000 stores by the end of 2015. And then eventually over 100,000 stores 2016. And also we're going to promote online. So it's like online to offline business model. So I believe within two to three years, this drink will really take off because people want health. What kind of revenue stream is that potentially for SHGT if you just sell one can a day in each of these stores by the end of 2015? Let's say by the end of 2015, we'll have... 50,000 stores. If we just sell two cans per store, so that's about 100,000 cans per day. And then let's say we just make 50 cents and multiply it by that and then multiply it by 365 days, that the numbers 
get really huge because our AAA black rice drink in a supermarket in China, uh, usually the supermarket will put us right next to Red Bull or Coca-Cola or the best-selling drink in China. And so it's already positioned as the most expensive drink in China. So people in China, they say, wow, this is a brand new drink next to Red Bull, Coca-Cola. Wow. Higher price than those brands. Must be good. Must be good. <laughs> and it's lucky with 888, right? You could drink it and maybe feel lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Chinese love number eight. Eight means prosperity. Eight means wealth. So triple eight means maxed out prosperity, you know. Go to the extreme. Yeah, I love it. What are some of your personal passions and how do they drive your life, Steve? First, I think health. Second, happiness. Third, doing something you love and you can help people. I always believe a mission comes before commission. Most people focus in profits. I think it's not wrong, but my focus always been helping people. Just like Zig Ziglar said a long time ago, if you can help enough people to get what they want, you eventually get what you want. That saying has been kept in my mind for the last 25 years. So I thank Zig for that. I listen to all the great American speakers, either live or their tapes or read their books, and they just helped me a lot. But the turning point was still Tony Robbins. I want to credit all my success to my teacher, to my mentor, Tony Robbins. Fantastic. Well, that's quite a statement and quite an accolade for Mr. Robbins. Now, your thoughts and policies with regard to clean living and taking good care of the environment are influencing your business decisions and endeavors with regard to success holdings. Let's talk about that and the problems that exist in China and elsewhere in the world. Yeah, the air pollution is a really serious problem in China. Usually you go out and you see this cloud, but it's actually not cloud. It's like pollutions. Our company is trying to make a good air filtration system that's very low price so anyone can afford it. So we've been testing this kind of products a couple months ago and got really well received. But because my standards are always world-class, we're still working on that. So eventually we'll come up with the best value air filtration system that everybody can afford and use in China. So I believe by doing good for the society, helping people become healthy and successful, SSGT will be one of the largest corporations in the world. I really believe that because Chinese has enough population for me to do that. The market is big enough. And then most people in China are still behind, although there are people like Jack Ma who are really advanced, but that's only very few people. So I'm going to commit my life to do that. Just help people whenever I can, wherever I can, using the products or tools or strategies, just make the whole society and country better. So I'll feel I have great contribution. That means a lot to me. And if I have enough time, I'll do that worldwide. Which may explain why you decided to take your company public in the U.S. Let's talk about that. Yeah, because listing in America attract attention around the world. And then you must do a good job because so many competitors, so many good companies. So the people, the investors will look at you carefully, inspect you with really details. So I think everybody in China who's in business, they always have a dream of becoming a listed company, whether in China, Hong Kong, or America. It's like the Chinese dream now. And I really cannot give anybody something that I don't have. So maybe I'll do it myself. If it works, I'm not just talking. I really produce results. Yeah, let's see what happens in the next couple months. I'm very optimistic about success holding group. I believe it's going somewhere and people who are part of it will benefit greatly. Any chance 
chance you opening up uh, some manufacturing capabilities here in the United States? I believe we can uh, find partners do that for us. I always want to leverage. Well, Steve, it's been a great pleasure having you on the program. I look forward to seeing you in the very near future. And uh, I've told you this before, but I think I'm on the road to becoming one of your disciples. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm always learning. They call me the number one motivational speaker. You know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm definitely one of the best students there is. I'm a lifetime learner. I learn from anybody and everybody who's successful, who can give me ideas, who can show me my blind spots. I respect all the gurus, all the successful entrepreneurs, and everybody I meet, I think they can always teach me a good lesson. So I'm always coming from this humble place and being grateful. I'm really lucky. So I want to say good luck to you guys. Thank you very much for joining us today on the program. Thank you, everybody. In the first nine months of operations as a public company, ending on March 31st, 2015, SHGT had revenues of $24.7 million and earnings of $3.7 million. Success Holding is the benchmark company for Steve Chen's motivational speaking interest, funding a film company, the WeChat social media platform, and the 888 black rice-based health drink which launched in January and has to date been distributed to more than 8,000 retailers in just Shanghai alone, with plans for full distribution across China, Western Europe, and the United States. During the coming weeks, you'll hear and learn all about Success Holding. Success Holding trades under the symbol SHGT. Just type in SHGT. Find a link to the SHGT website by going to our website, ellismartinreport.com. We ask that you consider SHGT as a potential growth stock and a possible investment opportunity. SHGT is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and this is only my opinion. Here's what I think. Gold has been overbought for years. It has no business being above $900 an ounce, let alone $1,100 or $1,200 an ounce. And I'm being generous with that statement. I predicted almost a year and a half ago that it would fall back to the $900 level, and I stand by that prediction, although I thought it would happen sooner than it may. Oh, I'll make the predictions. But to give a timeline is as about as fruitful as a fortune teller, or fortune cookie for that matter, predicting when you'll win the lottery. You may, in fact, win it someday, but who knows when. Now, to be fair, I've interviewed countless experts over the years on their predictions regarding precious metals, and I've got to say, you can't make any hard timeline predictions, people, because anything will happen at any given time, so stop it. Cut it out. Don't give a date. The odds are not good either way. Should you own physical gold and silver as a hedge against a soft dollar? First of all, is the dollar soft? Really? You can own physical gold and silver if you want to, I suppose. But on what planet will you be spending those metals or coins on commodities that you buy and need every day? Not this planet, not Earth, not anytime soon. Probably not in your lifetime. The only way you'll use gold or silver coins as a commodity to buy and sell is if it becomes cool to do so. Or if Apple decides to make an iGold or iSilver coin. That is some kind of magic associated with it. It is just not going to happen. Now, I think everyone, in a sense, should own gold and silver only because they are a great accoutrement with regard to fashion and jewelry, etc. Home accents in gold and silver, wherever you can. Anything you can plate with these items. That perhaps would drive the price up or keep it up should it become a trend to own these metals for vanity purposes. For instance, I'd love to have a pair of gold glasses. 
Is there such a thing as bluish gold? My favorite color. Perhaps not, but if there were, oh yeah, bring it on. Has gold been coupled to commodities such as oil? Well, recently Frank Holmes said that with $40-ish oil, gold is doing very well at its current price. We really shouldn't complain. However, using the logic presented in that statement, check this out. When was oil last at $40 a barrel? Let's go with 11 years ago in 2004. Since Frank is using oil and gold in a marriage of sorts, let's now take a look at the price of gold in 2004. I did some quick research and I came up with $435 an ounce approximately at some point during that year for the shiny metal that augments the watch that I'm wearing right now. By that logic, the logic that well-respected analyst Frank Holmes is using, and I say that in sincerity, and I'm not going to dispute that logic, gold is currently doing very, very well at $1,100 an ounce. But again, using this logic, gold is doing so well that it really doesn't belong where it's at. The coupling logic that Frank is using should have gold well below my own prediction of $900 an ounce. Of course, gold is currently at 11, and if you own it, perhaps you should now sell it because it doesn't belong where it's at. It never belonged permanently at these rates because it was and is coupled to oil for some reason, and perhaps now it belongs at $400 or $500 an ounce, not where I predict it will be at $900. Take your profit. Those of you who are in it to win it, take your profit. There's a huge disparity between gold and oil right now, and if you bought it higher prices than it's at now, if you bought it dollars $1,600 an ounce, maybe it's time to take a loss. There's a huge disparity, like I said, between gold and oil right now. Something is way overbought. You can't eat gold and silver. You can't run your automobiles on it. There's nothing you can do with gold other than wear it or adorn your faucets with it. Even if it's the world's oldest currency, we don't live in that world anymore. The U.S. dollar as a world currency will survive, no matter what the Chinese and the Russians and others may or may not have in mind. Why? I have no idea for certain. Because English is still the international language of aviation? Because dollars are preferred currency for trading in places such as Cuba, Venezuela? Because the greenback is still key? Because when speculative oil and precious metal prices fall, you've got a strong dollar. Because it's in everyone's best interest with regard to banking and or the Fed if the dollar is strong. And if gold was ever manipulated up so as to draw in those latter-day speculators, it has been taken down by those same people that caused the manipulation, and they're far from being done with it. And what's even more interesting about the downward trend of gold is that it's not overdramatic. It's paced. It's less dramatic than the upsurge itself. It's less volatile. A pace decline in prices means that there is less volatility and a market perhaps you can trust. Shorting gold in the short term may be viable. And there are those that are doing it. Betting on gold in the long term? Well, that was done. And it began 7 to 10 years ago or more. And that cycle seems to be over. I don't think we've seen our bottom yet. And unlike the real estate market, which did bottom, it may not come back. Gold may not come back. Why would you go back to something that is out of favor? Once burned, twice shy? Why would the fund managers and institutions that banked on gold taking heavy losses for their clients, why would they bring them back in again and further risk their credibility, their reputations, and their savings? No one smart would. Isn't there a supply and demand issue with regard to gold and silver? Isn't that in play? Okay, there's a supply and demand issue if there is no gold or little gold. And it is true. It's not like you can make any more gold. Whatever gold is on the earth is a finite amount. You can't make more, and what exists won't disappear. 
therefore it's finite. However, has all the gold that there is on the planet been mined? Mm, I don't think so. So I'm going to say no. There's gold in them, thar hills, rivers, and valleys in many, many places. I know it. It's been pointed out to me by many gold exploration companies that have not taken the gold out of the ground. They all had a plan for their discoveries, and that plan is to prospect their claims and properties, identifying a resource and parlaying that resource to the major miners for development and mining. But guess what? Those miners, those big miners, have been scaling back, laying off, cutting back production, divesting of their properties. I'm not saying that all the smelters and mills have shut down. No, not true. As long as there are weddings and watches being made in gold-plated Rolls Royces, there will be gold production. And there are some industrial and medical uses for gold as well. Let's not forget that, but not like silver. Would gold be a proper hedge on a collapsing dollar? Well, no one really wants the dollar to collapse. Not when we are growing our population in this country. Not when we've been printing so many of these dollars. And certainly when the euro is in difficulty, which it is, and the ruble is in difficulty. None of these things have any sort of serious chance of being a threat on that dollar. Oh sure, yes, the Chinese are going to boost the value of their own yuan. But they can do that. They have a massive population that hasn't traded for years, for decades, for centuries. They can do that without any threat to the dollar. But they will not threaten their own holdings in U.S. dollars by attacking our market, a market that has supported them. This currency and culture and country is so resilient, it's nothing short of amazing. Perhaps one day we'll have less actual paper cash on our person. Many of us do now, relying on bank cards and such. But will we trade in anything other than a fiat or digital fiat currency like the dollar? I'm going to go with no. Gold is not finite enough. We can't account for all of it. We'll never be able to. It's not like accountants can go through it and quantify all of it. Let us all know where it lives. It's shiny and fun to look at and play with. But as long as we don't eat it or clothe ourselves with it, as long as the local 7-Eleven doesn't take it in exchange for a smoothie, all it is is a speculative metal and it has no business trading where it is today, or last year, or certainly the year before that. What about platinum and palladium? Other precious metals that are more rare than gold? Those are industrial metals that are used in automobiles and machinery. There's a lot less platinum and palladium than gold. The price of these metals should trade higher, and I believe they won't experience the kinds of lows that gold will. Lows that were in play when, again, oil was at $40 a barrel or less. And that's where oil is heading again. Why will oil head back to where it once was? Because really there's plenty of it. And the speculation play that the market manipulators deployed is done. It's not sustainable anymore. You can only sustain a market con for a while before it runs out of steam. And oil had no business being over $100 a barrel, not with so much of it available. We really don't know when it will run out. And if it's gone perchance in 100 years, which I seriously doubt it will be, that's nothing that we need to think about today. And in 100 years, most likely, we'll be using oil a great deal less than we are now. The demand will be so much less. So boom! Cheap oil indefinitely. Hallelujah. What's not cheap, really? Smartphones. They are not inexpensive items, and yet practically everyone I know has one or two. And they'll replace them every few years or so, and they can be as much as $700 a pop. And we use them all the time. These phones and quasi-handheld computers are devices that we use. We don't use gold like we use a smartphone. An Apple stock is at $124 a share. And Google, something we use perhaps more than Apple devices, is at $564 per share while gold stocks are really quite dead. When will gold stocks return? When every Apple device is plated with gold. That's when gold stocks will return. 
the things that everyone must have because they want them, because they're enticed to buy them, like the new iWatch, those things we'll be buying and putting our money into cheerfully. We will stand in line to buy these items. We will sweat and freeze to buy these items. Look, oil has a lot less wiggle room and so does silver. Both have more than halved themselves during the couple of years. The gold and silver ratio along with oil is not so in sync with each other that these halving trends are going to simultaneously occur with gold, but it will happen. I don't know exactly when, but it will happen. There's plenty of downward headroom left for gold than oil and silver right now, so you won't see those dramatic downtrends with oil and silver. A lot of that's taken place already. It may continue to happen, but gold has a lot more room. Wiggle room for loss. I expect silver and oil to level off before gold does completely, and yet I won't put a timeline on any of these predictions. Now, I've covered gold as a commodity and a stock during the rise and now the fall of it. I can only hope that those of you that have been following this journalist have been wise with your investment dollar. I've never recommended that you purchase anything. You do that entirely of your own volition. I will suggest this to you as you may or may not exit gold and or silver. I may suggest that you consider real estate. Why? Because we're not making any more land and people need to live somewhere and the borders are not closing in this country anytime soon. On the contrary, they're opening up both to wealthy and displaced foreigners alike. These people have to live somewhere, either in existing housing or housing yet to be built. Weather will bring many thousands of individuals to the South and the West just as it's always done. In addition to foreign investment and speculation, our own indigent population will move to a warmer client, or shall I say continue to move. And it's not an unrealistic scenario for those socked in by snow and cold this winter. It's doable, and this last winter has been indeed memorable. So many factors in play for real estate and in the country's largest urban areas, areas such as New York and even beautiful Los Angeles, there's an upward trend in real estate sales and development people are coming in. The real estate bubble did happen, and it popped back in 2008-2009, and yet it's quite possible that the comeback after the mortgage lending shakeout is sustainable given opportunity for foreign investment coming from all over the world. Asia, India, China, Latin America, Russia, and I predict Europe. Sure, anything can happen during these next weeks, months, and years, but as long as I have to use some form of American currency, whether it be coin, cash, or digital dollars, gold will never be worth what it is today again. And when our cash is no good, the Lord help us, it won't matter anymore. Is it time to sell? You be the judge. I'm Ellis Martin, and this has only been my opinion. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a summary on Oncolytics Biotech. Well, we're a cancer care company. We have a product under development that is looking at a number of different cancers at the same time. It's actually using a live agent, in this case a virus, to treat cancer. From that perspective, it's, it's quite exciting, actually, to take something this novel and to actually get it into people to try to treat their cancers. It's been quite exciting for us. Now, Reolysin is a reovirus which is specifically designed to attack cancerous tumors. 
Is that correct? Well, this is one of a small group of these viruses, and there are a number of them under development in a number of different companies that actually is naturally what we call oncolytic. So that naturally infects and kills cancer cells without being genetically modified. There are three or four viruses out there that are genetically modified so that they do that. And there's a couple, including real virus, that do it just by all by themselves. And the basis for that is a genetic pattern that is found uh, only in cancer cells. And so this virus will infect a cancer cell and well, normal cells too. And if it actually finds that genetic kind of profile that defines why cancer cells become cancerous, then it can replicate and grow and it'll kill the cell in two or three days. That's just the first part of how it works though. There's a secondary part where the act of actually killing the tumor, I mean, just like a normal viral infection at that point, actually causes the immune system to wake up and actually recognize what the virus is killing, which in this case is tumor, and you get a secondary immune response that actually is probably responsible for most of the long-term survivors that we're seeing on clinical studies. How is this related to chemotherapy? Is it something you do in conjunction with chemotherapy? Is it a separate issue? What are the various methods of treatment? In clinical studies, we've used virus, and our branded name is real license for that in combination with most of the available chemotherapies and radiation as well and now starting to do studies with some of the newer age biologics things like Avast and a hallmark of the, the reason why we do that is twofold the first is that those are generally the standards of care to get access to patients in first or second line so the first time they're treated or the second time they're treated, have to actually incorporate your therapy with what they're already getting treated with, in which cases, chemo, radiation, and new age biologic. The more important scientific reason is, is that Riolysin actually works a lot better in a tumor that's stressed a little bit. And I can't be too much more defined than that because it's a little undefined still from a scientific perspective. But if you stress a tumor, the virus actually replicates a lot better. And some tumors are naturally stressed, like the inside of big tumors where there's not much oxygen or nutrient supply. But some tumors aren't naturally stressed. And so a little tiny bit of chemotherapy or a little tiny bit of radiation causes that nice stressing event. And the virus actually works a lot better then. What is the game plan for the company in general? Are you going to be licensing your technology to Big Pharma? Yeah, when we started up on Clodex, one of the very first things that we did was to say, we're not going to become a fully integrated pharmaceutical company, the old FIPCO of many many years ago. And the reason for that is knowing what you do better or knowing what you do best. You know, we're not marketing types. And so our assumption was that we would take the product fairly late into development and then either the company would get bought or it would associate itself with a larger entity that had uh, marketing and sales expertise and if necessary, expertise in finishing off the product development in the very late stage. That is still our plan and I would still expect that to be the outcome. How has cancer research, in your opinion, changed in the last 10 years significantly? There's two absolutely revolutionary events that have happened in cancer therapy in the last 10 years. The first is actually not in the therapeutic component, but in the diagnostic predictive component. People call this personalized medicine. Women, for example, are getting prophylactic breast removal in case they have the wrong genetic profile to prevent themselves from having cancer and those sorts of things. And what that's based on is that this whole genetic testing revolution that's happened. There's certain genetic markers associated with certain diseases, not just cancer. But in the cancer area, now we can take a very tiny piece of tissue, like 5, 10 nanograms, which you can't even see. It's like a fine needle biopsy. And in a day or two, test that tissue and actually determine if you have a certain genetic marker. And then you can match that marker up against different drugs that you know will either work with that marker or don't work with that marker and allow a patient to get treated with a drug that actually will work with higher probability. And that's critical. The best chance a patient has at a 
effective therapeutic outcome is the first time they're treated. The second big development has been the harnessing of the immune system. Words that people may have heard are things like checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1, immune therapies. That whole area is in essence starting to harness the immune system to actually attack and kill tumors just like it would a parasite or an infection or if you get a kidney transplant and you don't have the right match, your immune system will reject the kidney. That's all the same type of process where we're now harnessing the immune system to kill tumors directly. And those two things have just changed the entire cancer therapy environment. Your late stage phase three trials with regard to head and neck cancers. What does that mean for patients afflicted with these cancers? Well, head and neck cancer is one of the most difficult cancers to address. It's a region, it's a location on your body rather than a specific cancer. It's really 10 or 12 different cancers all rolled into each other that occur between your lower jaw and your collarbone. That's really the region that's called head and neck cancer. And partly because of that, and partly because it's in many ways an environmentally induced cancer, most of them are caused by smoking or now human papillomavirus infections. Those two things together cause most head and neck cancers. That combination has made it a very difficult area to treat. And what we did was ran the first part of a phase three study, mostly to figure out which patient populations would succeed and which wouldn't succeed, and then to retool, adapt basically, and to do a a second stage in that study. And we are now preparing to do that. The location for that study is likely to be in Europe. And it is, again, quite exciting for us to actually being able to, to be thinking about addressing this very, very difficult to treat cancer. Now, there's going to be individuals that are listening to this program that either have some form of cancer or no someone that have some form of cancer that may be very excited about what they're hearing and I'm sure you get calls on a regular basis. What do you have to say to members of our audience that are interested in potentially getting therapy for themselves or for their family and or friends? We're contacted between five and ten times a day by patients or relatives of patients or friends of patients seeking access to real license for therapy. Normally in the United States the sequence that we direct people to is if there's already an existing clinical trial and we have a number of clinical studies going on at any time in the United States. If their cancer matches that clinical trial, they should seek to get onto that clinical study. And those clinical studies are usually up on clinicaltrials.gov. So clinicaltrials.gov is the website that gives them all the contact details and the people who are involved. Now, if they're unfortunate that they don't have a clinical study uh, that we're running in, there is the avenue in some of the cases to get what we call a compassionate release. That's a much more complicated process and, and honestly doesn't happen very often with respect to our product. Our first line is to try to see if we can get people on an existing clinical study. We don't really do that many of them in the United States, uh, but that is an option. And so if people can't get onto a clinical study and they want to discuss getting onto the product outside of that, that's the route that we would suggest they take. What types of cancers do you believe you'll be able to combat? Realizing has unique ability based on the genetics of, of cancers to treat up to about two-thirds of any specific solid tumor cancer type. So if you were to randomly pick somebody with uh, prostate cancer, what we know about the genetics, one could expect about a two-thirds probability of seeing some kind of tumor response in that patient. With respect to solid tumors, the expectation is that real lysum could treat virtually any solid tumor population, but about two-thirds of it. When you get to the non-solid tumors, so things like leukemias and hematological malignancies, the percentage varies more within each cancer. It can go as low as 20% in some cases as high as 80% in other cases. So it's far less consistent. But there is the probability, literally with respect to virtually any cancer, that real lysin will have some benefit for a proportion of the population. Tell us about your management team and the people that make Oncolytics happen. Well, we have six members of our core management team, senior management, three of which are resident in the United States and three of which are resident in Canada. 
And they have actually the kind of backgrounds you would expect to see in a biotech company. Our chief safety officer and our chief medical officer are both medical doctors. My chief safety officer is actually a pediatric oncologist, and my chief medical officer was a neurologist by training. And they direct our medical affairs, the two of them, both from the United States. Our senior vice president of intellectual property is also a U.S. resident, and she comes from a very, very deep background in intellectual property, having worked in biotech and then becoming a lawyer and working in one of the largest firms on the planet before she came and worked with us. So we have very specific relevant skills to our business. On the Canadian side, our chief Operating officer and myself both are microbiologists by training. Matt's a virologist, and I have a, a broader based infectious disease background. And so, from the scientific side, based on that, and our, our chief financial officer is a very well experienced person with having a company running on both the NASDAQ and both on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And so, you have a, a kind of a broad based skill set from different types of sources required to run and operate a biotech company. A very, very deep experience based, though, from a public company perspective. You have people who have been officers of public companies for an up to, in my case, over 20 years now. It's, I think, a relevant team and certainly gets the work done that needs to be done in a very high quality. Of course, you are a publicly traded company and you have a fiduciary duty in attracting a new shareholder interest. Let's talk about that briefly. You mentioned you trade in the United States and in Canada. Why do you think there's a great deal of interest in health or health-related concerns right now with regard to the stock market? Have you thought about it much? I'm sure you have. Well, biotech over the last 18 months has had a, a very good run, if you want to call it that, in the stock market as an industry. Part of that's because we're actually starting to deliver sort of breakthrough drugs in a number of indications. And it's one of those very few areas where when a person is an investor in the company, they also have interest or a feel-good factor with what they're investing in. I mean, I started out working in the oil industry and you're digging up fossil carbon out of the ground so it can get burnt. And while it's highly profitable in normal circumstances, it doesn't have that personal connection and the feel-good factor. Many of our investors, specifically in oncolytics, for example, have a personal connection with cancer themselves. And they also feel by investing in our company that they're actually helping move along the work in trying to find a new therapy for treating cancer. Biotech in general has that very special connection with its investor base linked with, if you're successful, very, very high probabilities of very high returns. If it works out, it's all things wrapped up in one package. Specifically with regard to Oncolytics, let's break down the share structure. What does that look like for a potential investor? Well, our share structure is pretty volatile from where the investors are, what proportion are institutional, what proportion are retail. We have fairly significant shareholdings in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Southeast Asia right now. So it's fairly broadly distributed. At times in the past, at one point we were almost half held in Europe. At one point we were, you know, 75 or 80% held in Canada. I mean, it, it does fluctuate. And our institutional shareholder base goes from single digit, so under 10%, all the way up to 50 or 60%, depending on the time of the year and what year it is. So it's a very dynamic shareholder base. I personally like the kind of worldwide distribution element of our shareholder base. It's, it's very gratifying, actually, to have that kind of attention from everywhere. Potentially, there's a great deal of upside, isn't there? Any biotech company, in particular in our case, uh, you know, with our current valuation, I mean, you can go from being where you are to transitioning to having, you know, late stage clinical data and product approval that leads to very, very significant changes in valuation almost overnight. 
and this has been repeated hundreds of times in our industry. And it's a, a very much an industry where you expect volatility and valuations, but the end is always that prize. If you get that late stage data and then subsequent product approval, you are going to have a high degree of certainty, a very, very high rate of return. And of course, you have some of that late stage data with regard to head and neck cancer. I think in the near to midterm, the most important milestones that people should be looking for with oncolytics is with respect to phase two data. We have five randomized phase two studies that are either completed enrollment or about to complete enrollment that we'll be reporting on in the next year. And we have a number of what we call single arms studies where you only have all the patients are getting your product that will also be reporting on lifespan data in the coming year. And the combination of that kind of very large amount of clinical data from a variety of different clinical studies are generally considered to be fairly significant with respect to a potential inflection or change in valuations. Brad, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to speaking with you again about oncolytics during the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Ellis. I do as well. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.